if I had not gone through what I have been through, there is absolutely no way that I would have risen to, to a position of such responsibility with so few technical skills or so, uh, so little um, you know, previous professional experience. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes Podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. So I'm sat here about 10 to 10 on a Saturday morning, just before I record today's episode with Rachel. Rachel is based in the UK. She's in her early 20s. And we met because she posted a comment on a LinkedIn post by Kelly, who was a previous silent superhero. And she said, hey, Kelly, your story reminds me so much of my own story. And so, of course, I got curious. I sent her a message back and said, hey, I'd love to hear your story. And maybe you know, we can share it through the show. And so she agreed. Um, and we did a prep call, I think it was last weekend, just to get to know each other, so I could hear her story, figure out what, uh, what it was she wanted to, to share. And what you're going to hear today is about her journey with anorexia. You're going to hear about time she spent in um, an institution. So what I'm hoping that uh, we can hear more about today is, and what I'm curious about today is, um, kind of the anorexia journey. How do you go from kind of controlling what you eat to somebody saying, hey, you are anorexic? Uh, I'm really fascinated to know that what it's like for a young person to go into an institution because those places I hear can be pretty pretty scary. Uh, I want to know what she learned from all of this. It's such a young time to be in that situation. And how does that shape you, shape your worldview, particularly, of course, always about work, someone entering the workforce with that experience? How does that af- affect you? And then I think more broadly, how does she, how does she see mental health in society, and what do we need to do to make mental health less less stigmatized? And of course, as ever, I'm sure there'll be twists and turns on the way. I'll ask questions that create a nightmare for me to, you know, edit out or something like that. So uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But next up, uh, we've got me and Rachel. Welcome to Silent Superheroes. I'm here today with my guest, Rachel. Rachel, welcome to the show. Hey, it's lovely <laughs> to be here. <laughs> Tell us, uh, who are you, um, what do you do, and what are you going to talk about today? Who am I? Wow, what a question. My name is Rachel Clifton. Um, I am a young woman in her early 20s who is passionate about helping people. For me, it's really around providing people with uh, the space to be and express their authentic selves because I didn't feel that way for much of my life. Um, I, I grew up in a world where children were seen and not heard. And I actually remember my father saying that, um, and he didn't mean it badly. I, again, when I mentioned my parents, I really want to emphasize how much I love them and how loving they were towards me. But that was the culture within which they grew up and they, they passed that down onto me unwittingly. And so now my motivations are to move away from that and really be true to myself and listen to myself and tune into my body and my needs 
and respect that rather than always placing other people's wants and needs above my own. Um, in terms of what I do professionally, I run sales operations in Europe for a public tech company. So what that means in practice is a mixture of day-to-day and strategic um, work, working with um, sales team and the VP um, on sales support, sales enablement, um, and what, trying to find ways of driving the region forward and ultimately um, making sure that we're doing the right things for the business. So you said you care a lot about people and often that care kind of care comes from our own experiences where, you know, we have a rough time and, you know, we turn that into like, I'm going to look after other people. So what, what was your rough time built around? From a very young age, say the age of about eight, just learning from what was going on around me that controlling my food intake was an effective mechanism for managing my emotions. Looking back, Lord, my relationship with food and my body and ugh, all of this in depth, it's clear that at least at that point, it was a cry for help subconsciously. I wanted people to know that I wasn't okay, that I wasn't coping. It, it worked. Um, it made me feel better. And Ultimately, in terms of getting me help and making people realize that I wasn't okay, again, I did really, really well. I was really <laughs> so is that a ringing endorsement of anorexia no. as a way of getting attention? Yes, but it's our own faults as a society for not teaching people to use words and providing them with the emotional space to be able to process feelings such that expressing our emotions through and in our bodies becomes a more powerful mechanism. For a long time, I was dissociated from myself. My self-image was so deeply uh, embedded in my perception of who I needed to be to be loved or to be worthy or to be good enough. I remember being at a, a family dinner party age about 12 and being told actually admiringly by the adults there that you know I just seemed so much older than my years I was 12 going on 21 and that's a great thing and it's also a really shitty thing because I think that now what I'm really exploring and reconciling myself with and healing from making sense of is the fact that I wasn't allowed for whatever reason to be a child and I was very serious and very, very anxious, but I hid it externally often and just felt like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders and I could cope with it for a number of years. I was pretty strong, inverted commas, and then I broke, I imploded and I took it out of myself because I, I think I blamed myself for it. I think I felt like it was my fault and um, like there was something wrong with me for not being able to just keep going. What is it that, that broke you, do you think, in the end? That's such an interesting question. Um, and honestly, it's it. if I look at the timings around when I started to get really, really bad with my eating disorder, 
um, having been diagnosed at the age of 10 with what was then called pre-anorexia, because at that point, um, anorexia was associated with um, adolescence and above, and therefore couldn't be diagnosed with people who weren't at that point. It was in the summer of 2000 and, oh gosh, 2010, it was, 2010, when I was 12, so that was 10 years ago, that things really took a turn for the worst externally. I just, after my bat mitzvah, I went away on Noam camp. So that's uh, a camp for you know, Jewish young people. Um, summer thing, um, my friends were going and I just used it as an excuse to not eat. And I came home early because I just wasn't eating enough and I was very physically weak. And to be honest, I was just having a really shit time. I mean, no one feels good when they're not eating. Um, and I felt very, very low and overwhelmed in myself and very lonely as well. Just really, really, really lonely. And anyway, I remember my mum coming to pick me up halfway through the trip. And a few days later, I was on the pediatric ward just because I, I decided kind of really for the first time to stop eating before it had been food groups and you know gradually kind of cutting down and then my parents implementing meal plans with the hospital and them really policing my food and it being very punitive you know previously it was if you don't eat you can't do this you can't do that I didn't care about anything you could lock me in a room all day and take away my computer take away my books just leave me crying and it's not going to work I'm not going to eat that and I think it was just the final straw. It was an act of defiance. I was past the point of being reasonable. I tried being reasonable. I tried acquiescing. I tried, you know, doing what other people wanted me to do. It wasn't working for me. Carrying all this pain led you ultimately, as you said, to uh, inpatient treatment. You stopped eating. What happened next? How does that situation get resolved? I think when I and my family entered the um, mental health system, so that's CAMS, uh, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services uh, in the UK, we, like so many other people, naively, <laughs> but understandably, expected the professionals to know what they were doing. I'm not saying that the professionals didn't know what they were doing insofar as I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to disparage them or their efforts or their training or anything like that. But every human being is different. People are complex. Children are complex as well. Particularly children's mental health. You're dealing with so many different um, intersecting um, factors. The professionals really struggled and honestly I think decisions were made that kept me sick was that intentional of course not like I, you know I don't sit here and blame other people for me remaining unwell but if I look at the treatment pathways that I went into I see very clearly that it reinforced not only my eating disorder but my self-destructive behaviors more generally because particularly when I went to Great Ormond Street, uh, which was my first um, inpatient unit, I was suddenly confronted with a level of love and care and support and nurturing that I had never had in my entire life. What does any 
sensible <laughs> person do when going from scarcity to abundance? They want to keep hold of it. Desperately, they cling to it. And how do they do that? Well, in this context, they have to stay sick. I feel like I've heard that story and it's been painted as, oh, that person just wants the attention and they go back in hospital. Like, I, I guess, guess given your history, like there's a truth to that. But when you put it that way as a like rational psychological response, it feels totally different to me. As I said, inside, I was very scared, very overwhelmed, just really wanted somebody to take care of me and let me be a kid and take away the responsibility and the burden that I had felt. If I think about the media portrayal in movies, TV of institutions, they're pretty scary places, right? As a child, presumably going into a facility for children, what's that experience like of being in an institution? Honestly, for me, at that point, and I'm referring specifically to Great Ormond Street, not to other places that I've been, there is a big difference. Um, <laughs> for me, it felt safe. It felt nurturing. It felt, you know, you've got an abundance of people there to support you day in, day out. Okay, so... Great Ormond Street, thumbs up, our Yelp review, five stars, <laughs> it sounds like. John Golden, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> then you went to multiple institutions over time. So like, how did you end up going somewhere else? And then what were some of those experiences like? I ended up going somewhere else because I wasn't well enough to go home. And I had asked to be fostered. And... I remember the social worker telling me that that couldn't happen because basically my parents were perfectly good. And I said, you don't understand. I just can't live at home. It's just too intolerable for me. I can't do it. I can't stay well. And my reaction to people trying to get me to go home at that point was to get worse. And to really clearly show in different ways, in more self-destructive ways, in more quote-unquote attention-seeking ways, in more ways that required you know, active interventions from others, that I wasn't okay. I felt awful about the very disruptive and destructive influence that I was having, not just on you know, the kind of the unit as a whole, but on the other people and their recoveries. What was your next stop? Going to Springfield, I was one of the youngest. So I think I was, I was 13 at that point. And this was a unit for, I think it's 12 or 13 year olds to 18 year olds. So I was super young and surrounded by lots of very unwell young women predominantly. And it felt like a prison. It wasn't safe and nurturing like Gosh had been. The staff um, weren't as consistent. Um, there were far more agency staff. Um, 
people whose first language wasn't English um, or who perhaps weren't necessarily um, trained in mental health, which was really hard. Um, and I'm really conscious of saying that because caregiving jobs are really shit and not paid well. And, you know, thinking about this now, there's a whole load of other stuff around privilege that I, that I think is really important to go into separately and, and address. But in terms of my own personal experiences, that was really difficult, but I, I really hated it. So I started to play the game um, of really trying desperately to leave. So what's the game that you played to get out? Well, I refused to go back from home leave and they didn't section me. I was healthy enough weight-wise and it wasn't justifiable. Okay, that's a simple game. Hasbro will not be picking that up anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Escape well, the institution. Go home, don't go back. <laughs> oh, gosh. That wasn't your last dalliance with institutions. Oh, dear, no, no, no. Rip through uh, the rest of the list for us. The, re the reason why this is actually important and relevant is because, for just for context, I was in hospital pretty much nonstop between 2010 and 2014. So that's four years. And I was in a number of different units, kind of back and forth, back and forth. So for example, I was at Great Ormond Street twice. Um, I was at Huntercombe, another hospital, multiple times in multiple different units. So, um, and after a while, your memory kind of blurs. And also I think that in practice, I've kind of blocked some of this stuff out. Like when I share this, I want to emphasize, it was a while ago. I mean, I've, I'm 22 years old. I've been out of uh, treatment for a good few years now. I've had sort of no formal intervention with any kind of service for four years. And I've been like healthy and managing myself. So it's a very, I mean, just in a very, very different place. And so it's strange for me to, um, to reconnect with this, although I'm, I'm happy to do so. And I feel like it is important and valuable to do so. And I appreciate this time. I'm going to call attention to something about this part of the story because it gets completely lost in Rachel's lightheartedness, her confidence and her poise. Rachel spent around four years of her life in a variety of different psychiatric institutions. While she was there, she was forcibly fed, restrained, injected and sometimes confined there against her will. That's not normal. At 14, you were playing soccer. Rachel was being fed through a tube. So as you listen to this Warm and smart young woman, don't lose sight of that horrifying experience. Unfortunately, the treatment approach for Rachel made things worse and worse. But don't worry, this story does have a happy ending. I think the point here is it's not normal, unusual, you know, even in the world of mental health at the age that you're at, to just go in and out of so many, you know, institutions. And I think I've got a sense of that cycle and how that was happening, which begs the question, how on earth did you break the cycle? Wow. How did I break the cycle? So ugh, as discussed, I ended up in this horrible loop whereby I was basically um, deputed from unit to unit because nobody really knew what to do with me, but people 
agreed that I wasn't safe to be at home. Um, and the really sad thing about that is the longer that you spend in these institutions, the harder it is to prove that you're well, even if you're behaving as if you're semi-well on the outside. So in essence, what I'm trying to say is that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Long story short, um, I ended up on section um, on section three um, at a psychiatric hospital uh, in Berkshire called Huntercombe. I was there on section. What does section three mean for people who don't aren't intimately familiar? <laughs> it means that I was detained against my will under the Mental Health Act. But by that point, you know, I'm I'm back in the hospital, and I have no freedom, and I'm back in the system, and my life is uh, scheduled minute by minute and arranged around mealtimes and weigh-ins and morning meetings and just a very strange parallel universe. And once you're on section, it's really, 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 really hard to get off it. Okay. So I asked you, how did you break the loop? Yes. And your answer so far has been <laughs> the, loop, the loop got worse. <laughs> got worse. Well, it had to get worse before it was going to get better. And you're right. I was told at the age of 15, having been in hospital for three years, pretty much nonstop, um, on section for at least a year of that time, that I would be chronic, um, that you know I was formally sort of deemed treatment resistant at that point, having been in services since I was 10 as well, so a good few years, and having kind of got worse in that time. What do you do with somebody like that? There aren't that many options, but there has to be a few because... As I said, I'm not a special snowflake. There are other people like me in some ways. And one of the options that was considered was a treatment centre called Althea Park House, which is a uh, long-stay care home for people with um, chronic and enduring eating disorders who basically people think won't get better. Went through a very painful process at the at Huntercombe, which was where I was uh, for the longest period when I was about 16, um, of trying to um, get funding for me to go to Althea Park House, having had an assessment and been accepted. So you chose, you chose to go? Yes. Well, I mean, the alternative, just for context, was me remaining on the secure ward where I was. Um, but it took a lot of time uh, to get that funding through. Um, but eventually it was agreed. And Althea Park was really my opportunity to try to regain some semblance of a normal life and rediscover, not even rediscover, but discover who I was beyond, beyond my illness. Because for such a long time, I'd been completely defined by that, not just by me, but I think honestly, most crucially by other people. And maybe this was just my perception, but it's really hard because, you know, even when you re-enter the world and you try and have normal conversations, people know you as being that girl. People ask you questions about it. And I felt so ashamed. I felt so profoundly different. And so what I took with me again was this feeling that I'd had since childhood for as long as I could remember that I was different, that there was something wrong with me, that I was alone. And I carried that pain in multiple different incarnations. Into Althea Park? Althea Park was a struggle and a breakthrough and a starting point. And I say that because I did not get better there at all. But I 
move beyond the most limiting aspects of my eating disorder and associated pathology. So in essence, what I learned to do was take care of myself or start taking care of myself for myself. So the difference between Althea Park and somewhere like Huntercombe is that Althea Park don't tube feed. They're not going to force you to eat. They're not going to restrain you. You're like you're there voluntarily because you want to be there and you agree to adhere to certain boundaries that are that are set before your admission. And if you don't adhere to that, then you must go elsewhere. And I was transferred there on a well initially um, on a sort of trial basis, but then on a community treatment order. So again, I had to remain above a certain weight or within a certain weight band rather and um, be seen to be engaging with uh, the program. And if I did so, then I could stay. And that was huge for me because the main purpose of Althea Park, as I said, is to support people who haven't had much of a life to try to engage with it on their own terms. If I were to take you back to one of your earlier stops on your whirlwind tour of um London's institutions, you describe one of them as punitive. And as you're describing Althea Park, it doesn't feel punitive. It's actually teaching you, like, you're an adult, you have agency, responsibility for yourself, do with that whatever you want. There's one punitive consequence, which is that you can't be here anymore. But other than that, like, you know, your, your decisions are your decisions. There's such a different philosophy didn't seem like it helped you get out of the loop completely, but you said it was a step on the journey. What the community treatment order and then going to somewhere like Althea Park enabled me to do or forced me to do was take responsibility. It's not even that I hadn't been able to take responsibility. It's that I hadn't really been allowed to take responsibility. And I hadn't been listened to as a meaningful human being. Like my, my wants and needs were not taken into consideration. People don't care how much I cry and scream. They're still going to inject you if you don't take your medication. So where did Althea Park and that new sense of responsibility lead you? I went home and I haven't been in hospital since. You had a broad grin on your face when you said I went home. Well, it feels like time to add, you know, a positive trajectory to my story. You know, how did I get to be sitting with you today, sharing my story? Uh, it hasn't been overnight, um, but I'm in a very, very different place. Um, the, key, the key thing for me when I got to Althea was looking around at the people I was living with. And again, I say this without disrespect, but just a kind of a wake up call was me thinking, I'm not like you. Like, you're really sick. You're really deeply um, enmeshed in your eating disorders. You really don't have a life outside of them. But, like, I do. You know, mate, like, I have a whole interesting interior world. I have passions. I have, you know, I was very, very driven in other ways too. I can be sociable and gregarious and fun and I'm excited about the world. I'm curious about the world. You, you're scared. I'm not scared. I mean, I am scared, but I'm not scared in the same ways as you are. I hear it differently than that. I hear that you saw that you could have a different life. I could go that way, stay here, 
have no life, or I could choose to have a different life. It's so funny you say that because the big breakthrough for me where things really started to change was when I committed myself, again, cliched, but to giving myself six months to really try and live. I, I, and don't, see, I don't see the cliche there I know, but at I all. Like I just feel like I'm living in like a weird, just inspirational movie or something. Um, but that's honestly... <laughs> I'm seeing the moments in the movie where you stand there and like the camera pans around all these <laughs> thick people and... <laughs> You know, some internal monologue plays or there's a voiceover or something. <laughs> you say, I, I can do this. I choose life. And you walk out the door and the <laughs> music plays and everything's good. So. Well, honestly, that's kind of what it was like. Um, so pretty much overnight, I made some pretty drastic changes. I started to meaningfully engage with education. So I went from having done no schooling and when I say this I do literally mean no schooling I mean when I was at when I was at Huntercombe my I was too drugged up on like olanzapine and other medications to really engage and my school stopped sending me things and to be quite frank I wasn't particularly motivated um as is often you know the case when you're stuck indoors and you have little freedom um but I I saw my opportunity. I saw very clearly this was my chance and I had to give it everything I got. And then, you know what? Like, if I didn't like it, then I could just go and kill myself. But I, I decided to give myself a chance because other people had given me a chance. And I'd worked incredibly fucking hard to be given that chance. It had been a fight to uh, get people um, at the secure unit to agree to send me there and, you know, to agree to even trial me after so long in units. People were like, you know, people didn't believe in me. So you started with education, filling in some of the gaps there. How else have you found yourself and grown since walking out the door of Althea Park with the music playing in your hands in the air? <laughs> wow. Well, I think, honestly, the biggest thing for me um, since that point was actually when I was 18, when I was midway through my A-levels, I was at a private college um, and really, really knuckling down and focused on academia. Um, and... I'd got very, very unwell with my eating disorder, like the most physically unwell that I think that I've ever been. And so this was a relapse. This was a relapse. This was a really severe relapse over a period of a number of um, months. And it was a relapse insofar as, um, you know, I was just very, very physically unwell. Like I was unwell to the point where, um, you know, I would have been in danger of like dropping dead BMI type wise. And, I'd lost weight very gradually over a period of time from a pretty low weight anyway, but like a safe weight such that I was still eating. So I was sort of, you know, I was still able to pass it off as being semi-normal-ish, but I was not well. I was not well at all. And my parents said nothing. And I was, I was feeling increasingly kind of desperate and unseen. And I remember my friend, and I will always be so grateful for this, 
my friend um, and her mum actually sort of staging a a mini intervention and saying, like, Rachel, you're not okay. And for a long time, I've just been pushing away. I've been saying, yeah, guys, like, I'm fine. Everything's great. I'm just really skinny. <laughs> Maybe not quite that last bit. But I was forced to face that I wasn't okay. And my parents were too. And it was a really tough awakening. And I was determined to do it myself. I knew I had to do it myself. I knew that this time, after so many years of being forced into treatment, I had to do this for myself or it wasn't going to work. And I found myself an amazing therapist who was very no bullshit with me. And I very reluctantly, because it was hard and, you know, one step forward, two steps back. And, you know, these things do not get better overnight at all, particularly if you're doing it yourself, particularly if you're having to keep yourself accountable, which is really what I was trying to do. Because as I said, you know, I wasn't under services at this point. I was very, very, very like physically unwell, but didn't have any kind of medical uh, support. And over a period of you know, the last few years, I worked on myself. I gained weight. I, I did the work. I did the really fucking painful work. And I'm still doing the work. And I think that I always will be. Because unlearning the habits of a lifetime takes time and continuous appraisal. And above all else particularly in this context with an eating disorder where, you know, unlike with other addictions and maladaptive behaviours, you can't just stop, you can't ignore it. It's something that I have to be very, very mindful of every day. And really what I'm reconciling myself with right now is the fact that it's okay not to be 100% better. You know, that we're all a bit weird. And many of us are a bit weird around food and we're all imperfect and that I'm allowed to be too. And that, yes, of course, you know, sometimes things still make me anxious and I have a tendency to unconsciously revert to wanting to control my food and body to manage this. And that's okay. It's not okay necessarily to to act on it, not longer term, but really the first step to change is always awareness. And being able to move beyond fear and judgment and shame to be able to say, you know what, I I love you anyway. We're all always works in progress. But I don't have to be recovered past tense to no longer be sick. And, you know, now I'm in a body that's very, very slim by societal standards, but is the biggest I've ever been. And sometimes uncomfortable for me, but I sit with it. I now live, honestly, a life beyond anything I ever could have imagined. Like the things that I've accomplished internally and externally, I mean, I don't pick myself up often, but honestly, I am actually amazed by. (laughs) Like I actually am. Um, To go from where I was, and this is why it's strange for me to talk about this because I don't often talk about it. So people aren't aware of the context within which, you know, my, my journey has taken place, but I am so proud of myself. Like I, I, I really, 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 really am because my life is unrecognizable. I am unrecognizable in every way. That's so important, isn't it? 
for you to recognize and be comfortable saying like, hey, I did some good work here. Because it could be like, oh, here's all the ways I could have done it better or differently. I'm saying, you know what? I'm happy with where I am. And for what it's worth, as I sit here, I don't see physically somebody with anorexia. As I've looked at you, you know, for this last whatever, you know, time we've been on together. It's not evident to me. I, I don't consider myself to have anorexia anymore. Like, I don't have the pathology. Anorexia, eating disorders are a mental illness. I don't have the pathology. Like, I, I have, honestly, I think a really healthy relationship with my body and my weight. I haven't weighed myself in over a year for very conscious reasons, because weighing myself is not healthy for me. And I now eat intuitively and I'm able to do so. You know, I fundamentally just have a very different relationship with myself. Like, you know, sometimes like everyone, I eat too much and I feel bloated and I'm like, I shouldn't have eaten that. But, you know, it is what it is. I, 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 just, I just see beyond it. I'm not imprisoned by it in the same way. What food have you discovered since, you know, you've moved back towards um, a healthier eating pattern? What food have you discovered? You're like, dang, I was missing out on that this whole time. Mm, that's a really good question. Pizza. <laughs> it's, always, it's always pizza. <laughs> Rachel fought hard to get into Althea Park. Listening back, I didn't think to ask why she felt like that was the place she wanted to go. I don't know, maybe it was implied in her desire to be away from those other terrible institutions she was cycling through. Anyway, and so it was, at Althea Park, and we have the moment. What we hear over and over again from silent superheroes is that moment where everything turns around, where they choose life, or where they choose to get help or to explore things that are going wrong for them. If I look back at my comments about her movie ending, walking out as the music plays, I stand by them. Those are the moments in these journeys of triumph. Those are the moments where the light in the dark comes and the trajectory of life goes from down or flat to up. It turns out that there was a sequel, actually, to the movie of Rachel. That's a sequel where things get worse and she ends up sicker than she's ever been at the age of 18. And just like in a sequel, and just like the fighter she is, she gets up and keeps going. This had been heroic stuff, indeed. Conventional wisdom suggests that you need to diligently go through school, and then college, to get a, in inverted commas, good job. What then for a young woman who largely missed four years of school? What are her prospects in the job market? As you put your life back together, I think, and got on a different path. You've entered the workforce. How has your experiences with anorexia shaped the way that you have approached your work and the workplaces you're choosing? That's a really interesting question. So for me, part of the reason why I wanted to come on this podcast and share my story was because I was acutely, I was, am, acutely aware that I still feel residual 
shame and fear about my experiences and specifically about talking about them. Um, and I don't want to feel that way anymore. And I don't feel like I need to. My experiences previously, they may have been severe, but they do not affect my work right now. Um, I have been a very consistent and hardworking and kind and collaborative um, employee and co-worker for a number of years right now. Um, and my uh, previous um, mental health issues, um, because, I, because to be quite honest, I don't consider myself to have any specific issues in you know a diagnosable way at this point. So what you fear is the stigma and how people will think about you and judge you. So what is the stigma in the workplace for people who have, you know, actively um, in anorexia or who have pre previously uh, experienced I don't that? know about anorexia specifically. And, I, and, I, and for me, it's, it's not so much about the anorexia piece because I think actually thinness and not eating um, and being weird with food is actually quite socially acceptable and often glorified, particularly for women. Um, it's much more around um, declaring mental health issues or declaring having struggled, particularly in the significant way in which I have. And so, you know, on my CV or when people ask me about it, when I talk about my story, I always frame it as me having had a chronic illness, which I recovered from. That is true. Which like, is absolutely not, true. Which is absolutely true. Like, it, it, it's not a lie. It, it doesn't feel as authentic as I want to be. But also, I don't want to feel like I can't and that I should be ashamed or that I have something to be ashamed of. Because to be quite frank, I really don't. To go from having had very little slash almost no formal education to getting into Oxford to then having to deal with um, the upheaval around um, missing my grades and then not being able to um, fulfill my dream after working so, so, so hard on myself to get to the point where I was healthy enough to be able to do so to then being like, right, okay, well, um, I'm going to th throw everything I've got into trying to um, gain some meaningful work experience and really establish myself in this different way. One door closes, another door opens and then doing so and committing to it and, you know, getting to where I am now. Like, I think actually it's an asset. I've shown really powerfully that I can overcome adversity, that I am resilient that I can, you know, stay calm and think long term <laughs> and, uh, you know, deal with... Uh, you can find creative ways to kind of hack and abuse the systems that are in place, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm very used to dealing with um, multiple stakeholders with uh, different interests. <laughs> like, I, know, I know we're laughing and we're joking around, but what you're saying is true. <laughs> Too much we index on people who can talk about things they've done like that, you know, in a Harvard's, you know, business school class or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Like I navigated helping bring our project to conclusion. And it's like, yeah, that, that is important and it's great. But what you've done, just if I can be honest, is fucking real, right? You've done those things where the stakes really matter whilst by the way being sick whilst by the way you know your your brain kind of tormenting you with your self-image or how you're thinking about about yourself like you're strong <laughs> I, i'm not saying it was but you're strong to get through it right it's like running an iron man is not easy 
and we admire someone who puts themselves through that. And you've been through the mental health equivalent. And I've had a lot of support along the way, which I'm very grateful for. But yes. No doubt. Yes. No doubt. It's very good of you to recognize the others who have walked this journey, but ultimately, just as you were the person who decided, I'm not going to end my life in this particular facility. I'm not staying here. I'm doing something different. Like You're the one who's put the energy in for you this whole way and that is to be commended and rewarded and we should even though we don't, we don't want to necessarily tell everyone's story when they start at the company like that should be what's in your open your mail you know we send these mails when you go into a company you should say like hey everybody i've been through hell like you know that guy wrote about going to afghanistan in the army right this is what i've been through we should celebrate that but we don't because for some fucking reason we see it as as weakness Exactly. I completely agree with you. And just to build on that point, honestly, I think that my experiences have enabled me to get to where I am at such a young age. If I had not gone through what I have been through, there is absolutely no way that I would have risen to, to a position of such responsibility with so few technical skills or so, uh, so little um, you know, previous professional experience. And the reason why I, you know, I got that and I've had these opportunities is because I think that even if I didn't necessarily talk about this stuff explicitly, people could see and sense that I was mature beyond my years and I understood things. And I was the kind of person who actually could and would get shit done because it's just who I am. And it's just it's everything that I've done up to this point. It's not a question of, you know, proving it or coming up with like a checklist of, oh, I've done this project. It's just, you know, in order for me to be able to be sitting in front of you today and having this conversation and being lucid and being you know, like happy, I had to take myself on a really, really, really painful journey where I had to face the fact that nobody was going to save me. Like adult services are not like camps. Lots of people fall through the cracks. And I, yet it was the making of me. It was completely the making of me. I am so grateful. It was exactly what I needed. My life has been amazing since I became an adult and was finally kind of allowed to, to live my life um, in the way that I wanted to. I'm feeling like we're getting to a place where there's so much passion in this conversation that it's a good place to kind of to wrap things up. But I have a couple of questions before we do. I want to go back to Althea Park. And so some of those people who you felt were kind of hopeless. And I want you to pick one of those people and share what you want to tell them. I have one particular person in mind. And this is somebody that I had quite a difficult relationship with. Looking back and understanding myself better, the reason why we had a difficult relationship was because she triggered something in me. She is and was a lovely person. Sometimes our own shit gets in the way. What would I want to say to her? I mean, honestly, just I really hope you're okay. And, and, and I mean that just from the bottom of my heart. And I'm sorry. I, you know, I want to say that I'm sorry for just some of the ways that I think my own fears and my own insecurities, and my own pain acted itself out around her. We started our journey together today talking about the fact that you didn't experience care and attention and acknowledgement and 
it's important to note that as we conclude your journey, you have showed to somebody else care and attention. So thank you. Rachel, is there anything else that you wanted to share or say or talk about before we wrap up? I still have my whole life ahead of me. And it's really that that I'm so, so grateful for. The most powerful thing for me at the age of 18, you know, when I was very, very unwell and was like, I just got to get my shit together, was learning how to love myself. And in doing so, you free everybody else up because you're no longer looking to everybody around you to provide you with what you're lacking. I feel so grateful to be able to do that, to be able to reconcile myself with what is. And I'm always trying and striving to accept myself and my circumstances rather than trying to run away from them. And that feels like you know, all a person could ever want to accept themselves. I'm just very, 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 very grateful. And I think that really the message that I want to that I want to give and share is, is that it is possible to move beyond really dark times and for things to change. You know, I never, ever, ever, ever dreamed that I would be feeling this way or in this place mentally or physically when I was younger. And the sense of achievement that I feel at having done so, that's something that no one can take away from me. I'm glad that you didn't tie when you're 18. I'm glad that you have come through that incredible um, journey and I look forward to keeping in touch and seeing you on future you know, LinkedIn comments and you know other places <laughs> that we're connected so Rachel I want to say thank you um, for your time I really appreciate getting to know you I want to say a huge huge thank you to you too James this has been such a pleasure and a privilege and really, really healing um, for me too. You know, thank you for holding space. Um, it means a lot. It's really valuable. I love what you're doing and I appreciate you and I wish you all the best too in your own journey. Thank you. Well, I'm just done with my recording with Rachel. I think that we talked for about two hours, all told, and probably about an hour and 40 minutes of that was, uh, was the recording that uh, became ultimately this podcast. And I had a great time um, talking to Rachel. I feel like there was an incredible amount of grit shown to get through this journey. I mean, she's only in her early 20s, but has spent four years in and out of all sorts of different institutions trying to figure out her anorexia and get that resolved. And that's amazing. And it's kind of amazing to me as well that... This journey with anorexia started so young. I can't imagine what that must be like. So to kind of come through that, and then I had this conversation with her, and she's confident and smart, and she's doing a, a great job. It's an amazing, amazing journey. I think one point that really stuck out for me was the um, moment she decided to leave Althea, which was the palliative care for people with anorexia. And... I think that that represents something for all of us in our lives. We all get to make 
decisions about how we how we live our lives. Yes, of course, like I have bipolar. I can't decide not to have bipolar, but I can decide whether I'm going to manage it and whether I'm going to take the management seriously. If I'm a business owner or an HR person, I can decide how I want to treat people who have issues with their with their mental health. And as we can see from this story, when Rachel decided she was going to move on from the facility, it was a key decision that helped her get her life back on track. Then the final thing I want to note is when you look at Rachel's resume, you don't see the grit and perseverance she has shown to get through this journey. In fact, the fact that she didn't go to school from 12 to 16, she didn't get into you know, Oxford and ended up going somewhere else, that's what makes her who she is. That gives her a perspective other colleagues who took the traditional route don't have. And so I think that's super valuable in the workforce. So I think we need to start looking at mental illness and that battle and that struggle as a show of strength. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed listening to today's episode of Silent Superheroes. If you want to hear about more episodes as they're recorded, you can either follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash silent superheroes, or you can go to the website silentsuperheroes.com and sign up there for our newsletter. And it would really help me if you were to give a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Those ratings and reviews, I think bluntly, just lend credibility to the podcast. So when other people look at it, they're like, oh, that one's got you know 50 reviews or something, then I'll, uh, I'll listen to that one because obviously lots of other people had and it's okay. So if you think this podcast is okay and worth listening to, then please go ahead, leave a rating and a review. I really appreciate your time. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255 or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash to help others find the silent superheroes podcast please leave a review on itunes or your favorite podcasting service